Welcome to another Eye for the Light podcast. Newton and Co here, and I'm here with my co-host David Newton. David, hi. Hi, Chris. Good to be here again. Um, today we are blessed with the company that we have for our podcast. Close personal friends of mine, known them for a very long time, but more importantly, phenomenal photographers, although one of them will suggest he's not. Legends of Screen, BBC, Big Cat Diary, oh, Sacred Nature. Uh, he's giving me the, the come on signals. I'm trying to think of anything else. Tale, t- uh, Tales of Light, big thumbs up are coming. Uh, I'm going to stop there and say Jonathan and Angela Scott, uh, or JNA as I know them. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to this podcast. It's a, a pleasure to have you here. Lovely to see you, Dave and Chris. Thank and you for inviting us. Incredible. And of course, we were in the UK recently and managed to see you, your lovely wife, the new edition, and that huge flipping truck. The oh one God. that Chris and I are sitting in right now. Yes, I know. <laughs> so I'm going to let Chris lead off because I know you so well. Like I would just dive into the the deeper meaningful questions but Chris is going to give us some some of the you know superficial scratch the surface to begin with just to get you warmed up okay you, you're talking to us today from Kenya which is where you live how did you come to make that home I actually was born in Africa I was born in Alexandria in Egypt and then after the Suez crisis my father moved the family down to Tanzania so I've always been in well, always, since I was four, I've been in East Africa. So this has always been home to me. Jonathan, on the other hand. (laughs) I took the long way around. So I was born and brought up in England on a farm in Berkshire, passionate about nature. And I came to Kenya on an overland trip, 1974, 6,000 miles, almost four months on the road, London to Joburg. And when we came through East Africa, I just realized that was the... The, the Savannah Africa that I had fallen in love with on television, magazine, the thing that really drove my journey of wanting to go and try and do something with wildlife. So Kenya, when I saw it, and Tanzania, Mara Serengeti in particular, you know, the last great place on earth for people like us in terms of big cats, wildebeest migration. And so even though we passed through relatively quickly, 1974, and I spent a couple of years down in Botswana, I couldn't wait to get back. And then 1976, 77, made Kenya my home. In fact, more importantly, made the Masai Mara my home. And at that point, was your interest in wildlife or were you both photographers as well? I have been taking photographs since I was a child. My father gave me a little box brownie when I was about eight years old. When my brother was sent off and to boarding school, he was my sort of best buddy and my you know, we didn't have in those days in Tanzania, there was no television or toy shops or anything. So nature was our playground. But when I missed David, my brother, my father gave me a little tiny camera to mess around with outside and, and doing my thing. So I've always loved photography since I was a child and carried on through my life taking photographs and doing odd things for people, you know, whether it was fashion photography or portraiture or things like that, but never made it my profession um, until I met Jonathan. So I was very lucky. And and I think also, of course, the big difference was there was me dreaming of Africa and the Serengeti and Angie was with her family. That was the, the great, you know, annual adventure was to go to the Ngorongoro crater camp out and Serengeti she knew it firsthand and I just couldn't wait to get there but my background was zoology so I took a degree in zoology and but it was natural history really that um, I was already passionate of you know always passionate about it in fact I remember when taking my degree how I hated statistics suddenly came into the picture computer modeling of you know animal behavior and that was the bit where i really wanted to buy you know sort of bow out it was natural history was my great love so you both started into wildlife photography together i guess you have been kind of right at the forefront of wildlife photography for a while should we say we don't have to say how many years but for a while back when you started it was probably a very different landscape wildlife photography looked very different to what it does now what changes have you seen what's the biggest changes you've seen over over your careers 
you know yeah but i think it you know there's an interesting point at which we can immediately nail that simplistically which is the difference between when i won the wildlife photographer of the year competition 1987 the competition was still very much driven and 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 sort of had a hunger for action pictures so if you had you know a cheetah chasing a gazelle or a wild dog as i did you know, latching onto the nose of a wildebeest or lions jumping all over a buffalo, it caught people's attention. There wasn't anything like as much natural history as we've seen today. And certainly in the stills photography, if you had great action, you had a great chance of being noticed. 10 years, well, let's think 87, then Angie won it in 2012, uh, 2002. And her picture, this painterly beautiful image of elephants uh, pausing for a drink in the Luangwa Valley was much more the way photography went. It wasn't going to be good enough just to capture great action. Your pictures had to have more artistry to them. And Angie, to be honest, was always an artist. And in fact, I, I just didn't even understand light. Even when I'd been taking pictures and doing quite well with them, I didn't have a clue. I'd stick the sun behind me, backlight, side light. I saw Hugo Van Lauwek, Jane Goodall's first husband, wonderful at that. And then I met Angie and I saw the light. <laughs> Dave's question was what, how wildlife has changed. And I think to, to address that, I mean, I remember as a child, you know, Serengeti and, and traveling through Africa with my parents, you know, there was only one small little lodge in Ngorongoro Crater. I remember it as a child and very, very few people, you know, you would have, you would be the only car. Then when I met Jonathan, I mean, he'd been in Amara, blissfully unaware of all the tourists, really, because in those days, there weren't that many yeah. camps, there weren't that many vehicles, there weren't that many tourists. No. And now, it's, in, I it's mean, it is completely the opposite. And that's hence why we've launched this... Um, so, so, you know, the... Uh... I was going to say uh, yeah, code of yeah, no, no. Safari, safari etiquette to try and deal with that. But I think also what Angie's is implying is the fact that it was a, you know, to get out there and take pictures there in those days. No, you know, now you can get a, rel well, you can get a relatively expensive trip, but you could also, there came a time when you could travel cheaply. Okay, we traveled overland. But for the average photographer wanting to go on location to some of the places where we photographed, was going to cost them a fortune. So there weren't many people doing it. And the ones that were, were mainly there because they were scientists or they were there by, for some other reason and were taking pictures at the same time. But the whole thing, as Angie said then about, the, you know, suddenly the competition in terms of how many people, how accessible travel to Africa came, say from the 60s onwards. And it, funnily enough, I was, I, I was writing to, um, David Attenborough the other day asking him about safari etiquette and stuff and reminding him of when I took him on a game drive around Musiara Marsh where the marshlands that we followed for the last sort of 45 years were and him saying to me when we stopped to look at the marshlands I took a couple of pictures he said I don't know how you do it he said how on earth do you cope with all the other cars and and other people trying to take pictures and I looked around me and of course, yes, maybe there were five, 10 cars. Well, I'd have laughed or he'd have laughed today when there could be 50 cars. And I just said to him, I just close it out. My focus is entirely on what I'm trying to study or photograph and, and everything else has to become irrelevant. But my goodness, what a difference today. I think the, the, the change has been that the people who are actually taking the photographs or the the people that are there are actually actively engaged in the competition between themselves. So you have mm. people shouting from vehicle to vehicle. Yeah. So you can't actually block it out anymore. People will drive into your shot. They want to push you out of the way. It's a very sad thing. And they, they are disturbing the animals. And that has been proven in the sense of the scientists in the, in the conservancies have seen that cheetahs raise more cubs in the conservancies as opposed to the reserves. Where there's less visitors. Yeah. So it's a sad thing, but in answer to your original question, 
it's a huge change that Johnny has seen, yeah. Johnny and I have seen, both, and I've seen from when I was a child. It's 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 chalk and cheese, yeah. really. Both in terms of accessibility, many more people after COVID or pre-COVID, many more people traveling. Obviously, huge changes in the photographic industry in terms of the value of an individual image. I mean, Getty and Corbis alone between them, or maybe even individually, have you know hundreds of millions of images now. So being a photographer and relying on sales to stock directories and you know or having them market your work or through editorial use it's gone but i think this other thing too is people who are traveling now to these extraordinary locations i think sadly and and i'm generalizing they view it as entertainment so when you come to the Mara and you get amongst the big cats, one in your thought for the average person coming is, oh, God, you know, we saw Big Cat Diaring, we saw the David Attenborough series, and, you know, we want to see a kill. There's almost this sense that it's wildlife on demand. And when you see people turning their backs to the very thing they should be enjoying to get selfies, whether it's a river crossing, you just think you're not living in the moment. You're not, cap you know, as, as the New York Times said, I love this. They said, in actually addressing this issue, you're pointing the camera in the wrong direction. It's become about us, not about the experience. It's become about, I was there, as opposed to, I was there, and I just soaked up the magic of it, took a few pictures, but I was present to it. I mean, that leads on to so many questions that, that we had already, but the, you, you mentioned your safari etiquette. And obviously there's mm. been a lot of changes in the Mara, <laughs> thinking particularly, um, they've banned open-sided vehicles now, which is there's a whole raft, a whole raft of things. Yeah, there's going to be some photographers, Dave, who who will not think of us as their friends because they'll think, oh, you know, great for these guys. They had their day, and and they've you know been successful with their images, written books, whatever it is. Now we want to come and do it, and and they don't want us to have a free reign. But it's actually nothing to do with that because we don't believe that anything in the safari etiquette is other than good manners, respecting the wildlife. And so if we say or suggest, and yes, it has been taken up by the authorities, that a vehicle with the door off and somebody lying, either having a picnic or photographing cats close by is definitely going to upset them and disturb them. And that just, and plus, because the Mara is so overwhelmed with visitors and people, you know, taking pictures or whatever, it adds to the sense that it's just a free-for-all. And so we're saying, look, maybe in the future it would be different, or if you want to do that kind of thing and you can go off quietly somewhere else where you won't be five of you all doing the same thing, great. But let's just bring back the sense of reverence to nature and the very thing that we're saying we love and that it's not just, oh, yeah, got that, gone. The essence of it is putting the animals back in the yeah. centre. Yeah. You can go elsewhere to do those kind of things, whether it's drone photography or remote controls, mm -hmm. where there's less cars, less interference. There are places that you can do that kind of photography. But in the Mara, with so many yeah. vehicles, so many people, the animals that we've seen this huge change in the population and how the animals yeah. now behave, they literally when the lions are, are trying to get to shade in the morning and they're trying to walk with all their cubs through 50 cars and the cars are going and blocking them mm. on the road like this eventually the mothers just sit down <laughs> and put their head down yeah, they just say and just say okay yeah you know we give up yeah. and when you see mm -hmm. that your heart breaks and you think no 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 that we have to make a change here in the Mara where there's yeah. so many people so many cars but photographers can go elsewhere and and also funnily enough Dave somebody said to us the other day sent me a message who was a journalist who had actually focused on the safari etiquette because the governor of Narok who managed the Masai Mara you know we were delighted at a stakeholders meeting he signed it and said I'm going to be a number one champion of this this is what we need but as somebody said you better extend that to other places because in Nairobi National Park, there was a bunch of high powered delegates from another country who literally got out of their car where the lions were and started to wanting to get into a better position or have them with the things. And of course the lions, I don't, I didn't even want to look at it, but it was 
absolute chaos. And when, because of their, a little bit like a diplomatic community, yes, I can park my car anywhere. When the Kenya Wildlife Service rangers and people said, you know, what are you doing? Get back in the ground. They were offended. They were upset. So there is, we need a wake up call. It's gone too far. And unfortunately, the Mara has actually acted as the most terrible example. I, we could cite for you events around every single one of those safari etiquettes, such as don't go and park yourself on a track when you've got a mother carrying cubs trying to go to where she's decided. She's probably spent hours waiting for that moment, checking if there's any hyenas or in any danger. It's not just random. She's, it's a positive thing. This is the moment. Now you go and park your car smack in front of her. Other people will rush around as well. Disaster. She may change her direction. Next day, you may find she's lost the cubs. Similarly, with den sites where you've got a cheetah with cubs so small, their eyes aren't even open. If the cars know about it, they're going to be right in there. And we see pictures where you know the person's been on top of the situation. So we've recommended, and it happens sometimes, but we'd say, look, you're going to have to do it more often. The park authorities to say, we're closing off that area. And then, of course, you put out logs and all the rest of it. Well, up until now, people would just drive around them. They say, oh, there's like, I'm going to go through a red light. I'm late for the party. So I think, you know, we might be going to be unpopular with some people, but it's not coming from anything other than being dismayed on behalf of the wildlife. It's interesting because I haven't been to the Mara for over 15 years. Mm. And the reason I haven't been back was because at that time, all the vehicles were driving everywhere. And yeah. I was seeing half a dozen vehicles around an animal. And I just thought this is not the experience that I want to have. It's, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm fascinated that it's got so much worse, but hopefully now you're doing something about it with the cooperation of the local authorities. Yeah, and in fact, Dave, you may know a very nice lady um, who is, her partner is Mike Hendricks, Harriet Nimmo, mm -hmm. who used to run, I think she sort of, I don't know about invented, but started wild screen or wild, uh, there was like a wild shots where the stills photographers at the time of wild screen every two years in Bristol, where the movie cinematic stuff would be shown and be awarded and whatever and showcase it and they, they would do go to the natural history museum have a two or three day event for the winners and and people in the wildlife photographer of the year she's since gone uh, and lives in I, I think in cape town or somewhere actually no somewhere near to a nature reserve in south africa and she then created wild shots which we went and spoke to similar thing forum for photographers show your work workshops you know a very nice sort of event she wrote to me when we sent her the safari etiquette and she said, you're not going to believe it. She said, a few years ago, we were there appalled by the behavior, appalled by the action of the rangers who basically will just turn a blind eye based on give me a few extra shillings or, you know, half the fee in cash that you'd pay as a fine and we're quids. And so it, totally out of hand. But what was really worrying was she said she then wrote to the Minister of uh, the Environment or the, uh, Wildlife, whoever it might, people who should have been able to be uh, oversight and could actually create actions. She said the reaction from it was just, yes, well, I mean, you know, yes, this could be a problem, whatever it was. And then nothing, then nothing. It was just like, and unfortunately, we've got to get beyond that. And I think it's happening. I think the country is realizing, and I know that the president, based on what one's seen, is interested in, the environment, climate change, and is most certainly not going to be happy to see the jewel of the nation's wildlife focus, the Maasai Mara, becoming a total mess and embarrassment to the country. So things will change for sure. It's, I mean, it's, it's good to know that things, well, hopefully will change. Certainly, I've, I've been out there a couple of times, and you're right, there's the examples you cite, it's terrible. For a lot of photographers, it's about the shot, not the animal. Totally. The picture comes first for, for so yeah. many people. And it's I think there's an education process there to teach them that if you didn't have the animal, you wouldn't have the shot. So maybe preserve the animal first. Totally. I, I mean, I remember, Dave, to give you an idea then. And I think, you know, part of it is also our, so for our tourism industry has been way too greedy. They haven't been thinking about the environment. They've been thinking about make a quick buck people coming in, setting up a camp, sending in somebody with a four-wheel drive, hasn't got the first clue about driving amongst animals. And I remember in the old days working on leopards, 
in the days when it took me six years to do that first book, The Leopard's Tale, in the 70s and 80s. And somebody, there was a driver there and he had people out. They were standing on the top of the car and there was a very shy leopard inside the, the this rocky outcrop, had two cubs. And I thought, you know, if she comes out or with this disturbance, she's going to try and move these cubs. And there was a drought. It wouldn't have been good. So I complained. The, the clients in the car were furious. This driver, you know, he's amazing. We've been this, this, this. I said, that's fine. I said, but what you're doing, I can promise you, is against the regulations, against the rules, and it's wrong. So I then wrote to the owner of the camp, and they said, but he's our favorite guy. Everybody loves him. I said, yeah, you know why? Because he's allowing people to behave in a manner which isn't appropriate. He gets them into positions much closer than he should. They get great photos and they think he's the bee's knees. He's not. Oh, so, you know, there is a big, there's a sensitization process that we need to try. And that's what we're doing with Safari Etiquette. Reach the camps, the lodges, the tour operators, the drivers, sensitize everybody. And as Shem Compion from C4 Photos Safaris we work with, he said, well, look, one straight thing we can do straight away with more people looking at, um, you know, camp lodges, drivers on, on the web, looking to do their research and see which is the best camp, look for their environmentally friendly credentials. What do they do with the community? And as Shem said, we can also say, do you endorse the safari etiquette? Does your camp and lodge endorse safari etiquette? No, why not? Well, this, 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 sorry, we're not bringing our clients. We need that kind of collective response where everybody says, this is in nobody's interest. I think that's fascinating. Getting back to the photography, I think it's important. You talked about artistry, and I think it's important to remember you were shooting on film at that point. Yes. So um, you had to get it right. And you both won Wildlife Photographer of the Year. Who's the better photographer? I mean, no, I can promise you. We're very different. No, let me give you the bottom line. So Sacred Nature life's eternal dance which was angie's idea beautifully designed by son david 2016 and published by a photographer heinrich vandenberg of hb publishing in south africa lovely guy loves books and that book went on to win the gold medal for photography in the independent book publishers awards and as angie very graciously doesn't remind me too often about 95 percent of the pictures are angie's so she's the artist. You know, I was fascinated by what the animals were doing. But that's the thing I have to mention. You know, half the shots I could never get without Jonathan as my partner because he drives me as, you know, he's the most extraordinary wildlife. Not, not a driver. He's no, not the most extraordinary driver. No, but he's, he knows where to position the car. Great for getting stuck. <laughs> great for getting stuck. Yeah, then I would but, drive past him. But the thing is, you know, when you have somebody that knows the behavior of the animals so well, he can drive me into position, let me do my thing. And so it's a teamwork, you know. Yes, I, I might press the button, but, you know, a lot of the photographs that I get. But, you know, I'm going to tell you. I do you, have I, my own car and I do drive on she my She does, car. yes. When she gets really frustrated with you, God, life, you know, couldn't you see the light? Because side light, back light, Angie's forte. But I tell you what was funny. I always remember we were in America and we were staying with some friends and they had some red setters or golden retrievers, some kind of balmy large dog, two children. And they said, with us being photographers, oh, you wouldn't take, would you take us a few pictures? Yeah. So they're in the garden, dogs, children, people, mayhem, but great for photography. When I looked and saw the pictures Angie had taken, I just thought to myself, what was I doing? What was it I didn't see? So this is the wonder of photography, which is the person who can change the scene in the way they look at it, frame it, you know, the light, whichever lens they may be, all those, you know, the lens, the camera, the position, those kind of things, that allows you to make the image look different to how I saw it. And unfortunately, for a lot of my life, I would take pictures the way I saw them, not the way I wanted them to look. Whereas Angie intuitively seems to, she just sits. And of course, it, to get the best out of anything, you've got to put in the time. So she's never happier than just leave her all day with the marsh pride or even a kingfisher, you know, and just let her get on with it. But no, I, I've got better no, by I, copying Angie. No, it's exactly not true. He's very, very generous and sweet, but, you know, in his defense, you know, I think, you know, we photograph very differently. 
And Jonathan sees the whole scene and he does see it from a wildlife perspective. And he's a master at what's well, you, the, you know that you know, you know the um, old um, what was it Henry Cartier Bresson's classic, the decisive moment, which is the geometry when geometry. when all the elements come together in and, and it's and it can be just literally for a fraction of a second or if you're lucky enough it it stays put. But I think but the, my problem is I'm sort of too neat. You know, I look at the frame and and I, I quite like just taking with the iPhone or in the old days when people still thought power, you know, power shots and things would be, you know, the making of the industry because everybody would want to step up as being a photographer instead of keep taking on their phones. I love those little pocket cameras and, and a wider view and then all the elements get right. But I'm a bit too neat. I, I don't, I tend not to break the rules too much. Whereas at Okay, we'll get on I to do. this. This is nothing to do with photography. No, no, no. She looks lovely and sweet. Try going through immigration or customs with Angie. I'll be left with a stone Buddha that I've cut 18 kilos that she's fallen in love with in a brown box. She just waltzes. Anything to declare? No, gone. Literally out the door and in the vehicle. I'm left. Explain, because I can't say, I, I have to tell the truth. So I have to explain that inside this box is a stone China Buddha. And the, my only thing that got me away with it this time, with her having done a bunk, was I put my hands together in a symbol. When the, when the customs officer didn't know what I was talking about, I said, you know, Buddha, uh, hands, you know, God, religion. And he just, his eyes glazed and he, he just, move along. Move. <laughs> the thing is, Johnny took quite a while sort of getting used to my way of taking photographs and I remember when we first met we were taking slides at the time yes. we had a big slide table and Johnny would be you know purposely going through every single one throwing them in the bin throwing them in the bin you know the ones he didn't like and I learned to come shuffling in <laughs> at night and take the bin and take out all the shots that he'd thrown away. All the creative, you know, you know slow motion. Half the oh, yeah, dance. half the head. I say, oh, that's no good. You and he'd just yeah. dump it. And then I eventually had the courage to say, Johnny, I meant to take it like that. So I really would love to keep that. <laughs> and slowly he, he sort of understood that there was neat is great. And, and, and he's just, really good at neat. Yeah, I'm really good Sometimes, at neat. But, but, uh, so we're a good partnership. Yeah, yeah but I'll give you an example. So for instance, you know, we we photographed the migration a million times. So we come out of camp, early morning, beautiful light, wildebeest all over the place. And I say to Angie, I said, I said, look at that, amazing, you know, all the shape. She said, Johnny, we are not going to photograph the wildebeest like that. And she saw these cattle egrets dancing on the back, backlit, of the wildebeest popping off down, dropping down onto the ground to pick up insects and stuff. There was the shot. You had a sense of a wildebeest bottom, but basically these two birds fighting back lips. So there was the shot. I was quite happy just to take yet another. And she'll tell you, she does all the editing and the processing. And she will say to me, Johnny, I don't know what was in your head, but you've got 500 pictures of the same iceberg. And if you can show me there is some subtlety here that I don't know about, great. But yeah, no, she's the photographer. <laughs> okay. Well, it sounds like you you're both complementary to each other, but just have different visions. Well, I I get the sense that Johnny, you're much more of the wide-angle shooter, and Angie, you're much more it. kind of yeah, yeah. In, well, in the other thing, I tell you the other thing, Dave, and I, I think this is probably because it makes Angie laugh, and I don't know if it's a bloke thing or not, because Angie's also very good at the, got some amazing action stuff. But I get excited when there's all hell breaking loose. You know, when buffaloes are, are nailing, you know, fighting the lions, Angie's feeling sorry for the lions. And I'm thinking, oh, that's an amazing shot. So I think action stuff I love. But Angie basically just likes to work her way into the whole situation and just sort of comes out with something special with that. So definitely, yes, I do. I do. Well, and you're a storyteller, but, so you like to capture. But I think, sort of you know what I think it is where we're so lucky there's two of us. So whether it's one driving the car and the other taking the pictures or yeah. one using an 800 mil lens while the other person is shooting with a wide angle, you get two for one. So in that, and, and also we're not jealous. I love her pictures. We sort of think, in fact, we get a lot of flack. When we put photograph Jonathan Angela Scott, invariably somebody will say, oh, no, 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 you can't do that. Which one took it? We said, well, that's not important to us. It's our picture. This was a team. No, 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 but we can't. You know, the publishers, 
it's, anyway, so we get that. But I think team effort, yeah, working we together. For that for a long yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, to, to, to have that credit. It's us. It's, we're, we're, we both participate in the pictures. So we think of them very much as a... And, and that's strange, isn't it, in the stills photography genre? Because it's such a singular, almost like a selfish, just me behind the camera, my view, this is my shot. And as you said, Dave, you know, there's everybody out there wants to get the shot. But with us, there's a generosity, I think, which we embrace our photography with and which we love. It, it really helps us be more productive. You, you mentioned uh, you mentioned icebergs and 500 pictures of icebergs. Now, you live yes. in Kenya, but you yes. both have an absolute love of cold places, too, specifically Antarctica. Why? What, what draws you to the extremes? Do you know, it's a good question because people... It's the last great wilderness on this planet. There are not that many places you yes. can say. There Get away are from no people. People that actually live Indigenous. there, yeah. know, all year round. It is, it is so wonderful for all the species. They're perfectly at home there. But of course, when a human being has to go there, we have to dress up in all this stuff and it's dangerous for mm. us. But it's the last great, great... Yeah, the, yeah that, the, that sort of, but I think also what we came up with, and, and I'm sure it wasn't original, but, you know, it's beyond reality. And we started with Africa. It was Angie's home. It was my dream to come and live there, do something with big cats, whatever it was. And I think rather like Alan Root, the great cinema photographer, you know, people would say to him, but why aren't you taking pictures in the Arctic or Antarctic or Galapagos and stuff? He said, he said, I've, I've barely scratched the surface of what I could do here in Africa. But he did eventually go to other places. But I think we were driven, I think just, well, of course, having a name like Scott, Scott of the Antarctic, you know, there was always, a, it resonated with me from the word go. But I think what we loved was the total contrast. No people virtually. But it's the light. The light is very different. Yeah, all day you if know, you're lucky. Well, there's all that night. too. Yeah. But it's the subtlety of the light that you don't actually get in Africa. Africa is, the colours here are so extreme. But in Antarctica, the subtlety of the light as it goes through the day is just mm. breathtaking. So if you love art, you, you can't but be totally captivated by what you see there. I mean, you, you just never want to go to bed. I think another in, in tr interesting transition too for us was as photographers was that, okay, so, you know, we were doing television, Big Cat Diary, you know, and stills, you know, and, and game tracking for us, me co-presenting. But I think we identified, and this I think is one of the reasons why we got to be old and still, you know, survived was because we looked ahead and I remember Angie saying, you know, things are changing in the photography world and it's it's not just enough just to be photographing Africa. We want to have a larger portfolio and we love to travel and also we love photographing people as well. So we need to stretch. We need to look at other ways that we're going to make a living. And part of that was doing workshops. So a lot of our travel in fact, right from the beginning with Antarctica, was that we could travel for free and be guest lecturers. So we could come on board, they'd pay for the flight, we were all free on board, food, accommodation, and then we would talk to the guests and help them with their photography. And you mustn't laugh, Dave, because I know I don't know anything about photography, but I could spin a good yarn. And I had Angie's pictures to keep them happy. Anyway, so it was keeping fingers in lots of plies. And so Angie said too, you know, television won't last forever. And she said, we need plan B. And if the sales from individual images isn't going to be your pension through the stock libraries and stock directories, then photo workshops, which we still do occasionally today. So the travel was also partly driven by that. And we still do some of that today. In fact, we'd love to go back to Antarctica. You've clearly done an awful lot in your careers. We're going to come back to some of the BBC stuff in a minute. But um, I'm curious to know, with so many pictures taken in so many places, what is it that keeps you going? What, what still inspires you? What still lights that fire? It's almost like an eternal search. You're, you're eternally searching for something. And I, I want to know what that is. I, I don't think, you know, I think even on one's deathbed, there would still be more to learn from this planet. 
I mean, it's endlessly fascinating. There's always people that have gone further than you've gone. There's always someone to teach you something. And there's always nature, always. I mean, every day, you know, we had this massive eagle come mm. and sit on the bird bath the other day for over an hour. And I couldn't believe what she was doing there, sitting in this bird bath for an hour. And Johnny wasn't here. That was the second time. <laughs> you were the second time. And got very excited you, with my little iPhone. One of my, my physio is actually a raptor um, rehabilitation. rehabilitation. Yeah. And I said to her, Zoe, what was going on? And she said, oh, she must have babies. And she just needed to get her feathers. Wetting her breast feathers. And I thought, you know, that is so extraordinary. You know, you, 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 I should have known that, but I didn't know that. There's always something different, something to explore, another country, another storm, another, you know, I haven't done nearly enough in, I love the sea. I would love to explore more underwater. But I think so there's I, always something. Yeah, there's always something new. But I think also, I think once you become a photographer, you can't stop. It's it, it's addictive. And I think you're never good enough. No, well, well, I've taken the odd picture that I'm happy with. But I think you just are constantly wanting to record it. So when Angie called me and, and it was, in fact, we identified it was an auger buzzard, which had come to the bird. My first reaction was I wanted to photograph it because seeing is so transitory to the human way of being. Photography allows us to savor the moment, to capture it and record it. So Angie's getting terribly excited. And in fact, she got me to build another little bird table area because when there's not much going on and we're staying in Nairobi, but longing to be photographers because of that obsessive addiction to the taking of the image, she said, you know, build me somewhere there where we, got, we get these beautiful, colorful birds uh, heart lords turaco so they have a sort of greenish plumage and when they fly being a forest bird this crimson blaze in their uh, in their secondaries and so yeah we're, we're just well for instance the other day a, a a cuckoo which we'd been recording just with the iphone and i found it dead don't know what had happened to it little cat hadn't got it but then i was fascinated because i wanted to photograph it it was totally different so i think this loving to record and savor the moment is one of the joys of photography and it just and it it's actually it can be a bit of a pain in the butt because Angie will tell you there are times it's like being a birder I can barely go down the street without saying oh look hang on a minute I've just got to record that come on you know but Johnny's a recorder whereas I just love to when you look through and I know you'll agree with this Dave when you're looking through your camera the rest of the world just sort of disappears and you're really, really focused just in that present moment of what you're seeing it so, so exquisitely in detail mm. because you're so present to that moment. So whether it's a bird, a sunset or a lion, it doesn't really matter. It's a very extraordinary moment because you see it in such detail that others, when you're looking at a lion, you slow it's a lion and you move on. You don't really see it. But when you're studying it through a lens, you're really studying its essence. And I think that is, yeah, it's very special. It's a very extraordinary thing. I just love that as opposed to, to me, it's not about the recording or I love the pictures. It's, I enjoy them. I enjoy the moment because it takes me back to that moment. But I, I'm not, yes, I'm not as addictive as Johnny to, no, I've got to take an iPhone all the time of our life. I think that's a very good point because we often say to people, because we both draw, so we did a colouring book on um, African animals and during COVID. But I think one of the things we become very aware of is how unobservant people become in their lives because you can't, I don't know how much they say you actually really hold on to in terms of what you see visually, but you must let an awful lot of it go, otherwise it would just be chaos in your head. But what we find is if you draw or photograph, you see detail, like for instance, you look at a buffalo through a big lens and you see the raggedness of the ears and, and the size of their nostrils and you know all these little details that just go straight over the head of naturally for people because they're not looking in the same way. So once you become a photographer, one, you can't not, 
but it does definitely increase your being observant, being, yeah, you know, being present and really looking. We'll always say to people, they say, oh, but there's nothing to photograph. Well, have you looked at the grass or the leaves? Look at the texture of the, the tree. You see in that kind of way, you see the light. It's also the, the color, you know, you can say, somebody will say, oh, it's red. Well, actually, what kind of red? What shade of red? You know, there there must be over a hundred different shades. If you talk to a printer, he would tell you, with printing, you know, there, it's all the subtleties of the shades of color. Mm. You get that when you're studying whatever you're taking mm. a photograph of. And I, I really yeah, and yet you love that. black and white. Well, black and white, I love more than color. Is that it going back to the dark room and loving what you first learned? No, for and... sure. And I think again, black and white focuses you into you know, the shade of what you're looking at. So it's a little bit more artistic in the mm. So There's no distraction from the colour. Mm. Let's um, look forwards a little. Obviously, you mentioned Big Cat Diary several times. Yes. Because yes. it's such a big part of your career. It's such a right. seminal series of, of yeah. natural history on TV. Um, and then mm. you did uh, Tales by Light. Now you're on no. Sacred Nature, no. Sacred Nature 2. What is Sacred Nature and, and what's the goal? Sacred nature was really, you know, I was always a bit of a regular Joe. I, I often say to Ange, my view of the world was very much what I saw straight ahead of me. I, I wasn't interested much to Angie's horror in the stars and the sky. And I, even if you ask me today, does the sun go around the moon or the, the, the moon go around? You know, I'd have to really think, well, the sun, go, you see, look, I'm confused already. Does the sun go around the earth? I'm bringing the moon into it. But that's, you know, I was a very straightforward. I, I was passionate about being alive, I think was the biggest thing. Loved being alive. But I looked out there. So I didn't look at the sky. Didn't The ocean didn't interest me, which, of course, is Angie's great joy. So I was very undemanding in that kind of way. And the reason I mention it is when I met and, ma and married Angie, I almost said managed Angie, which is absolutely not the case. Um, when I married Angie, she opened up a very, a much more a spiritual, a, a connecting me emotionally. I was emotional about things, but she really made me think much more deeply i'd sort of rejected god you know i went to church as a kid and i loved getting a bit of wine and probably that was why i got confirmed you know get get a little bit of that <laughs> alcohol but um i didn't really buy it and then angie gave me a way to look at life and a way of looking spiritually so when she said she always would say to me look you know the writing about behavior and detail, I, I want you to be much more emotive and connected to how it moves you. And so sacred nature, in a sense, was a tribute to one, the Mara Serengeti, which we really do think of as the last great wildlife spectacular on Earth. I mean, there are others, but a pretty good place to start. So it was a tribute to that, but spoken and 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 translated and particularly in terms of the pictures because what angie said was and of course all photograph photographers would love this but you don't often get the chance virtually all of our books were led by the text so the editor would say okay we need a picture here because this is what you've talked about and angie said before i die i want a big book i want more pages than the average publisher would give me i want more color i want better paper and I want the pictures to speak for themselves. The text is there, but separate from the pictures. And that's exactly what we did with the help of our son to design it. So it was a eulogy in a sense. It was a hymn, a poem to the universe and that particular Mara Serengeti universe. So that was the first book. And then Angie said, you know, look, it's all very well and good raising people's awareness of lions and leopards and polar bears and that iconic species. But what we really need to do, if we really want to save them, is to focus on the landscape. Because if you give these creatures space to live, they will thrive. So Sacred Nature 2, reconnecting people to our planet, was to say, we want to take a global view to this. And we want to break it up into chapters which followed landscapes, savannas, forests, mountains, oceans, polar regions, deserts, and address the fact that 60% probably or headed that way of people now live in urban areas, if not exactly cities, but built up areas. And they're not even aware that nature is life itself. 
doesn't matter where you get your food or your drink from, the fridge, you know, a tap, it comes from nature. And however smart we are, everything, the raw substance of our technology is from nature, but we've forgotten to the fact and to the point that actually now we just think of nature as something to be mined, as, you know, a commodity that we own and we don't. So that was the idea of the second book. And the Sacred Nature Initiative, Angie said, okay, here's the books, they're a flagship. We need to create a way of actually leveraging, amplifying that message. So the Sacred Nature Initiative was built on three pillars to inspire, hopefully through our work, our images, our movies, TV work, talks, whatever, educate, children's books, get to the kids, get them, it's their world they're going to inherit, however messy it's going to look. And then if you're inspired and you know what is out there, maybe you'll conserve it. And so, and in a sense, the safari etiquette has come as a sacred nature initiative, working with the Narok County government and saying, we need to get people better informed and more caring about the planet, because right now it's just for us. We just think of it as something there, a commodity for us to enjoy. That's the short version. Okay. If you, I came to you and I said, give me one killer wildlife photography tip. What would it be? That's from each of you, and you can't have the same one. Mine would be study your subject. Learn about, learn everything you can about the subject you want to photograph before you go and study, before you go and take a photograph. Simple. Okay, I think mine would be don't be a lazy photographer, because what I learned from the day that I set off on the overland journey with a camera that I didn't know how to use and I paid the price, that you really need to understand what your cameras and the different lenses and the way the camera works can do. Because you want to get to the point at which your creativity isn't in any way shackled by ignorance in terms of the gear and what is possibly out there. And I can give you you names of all kinds of photographers, Charlie Hamilton James, Brent Sturton, who are masters of their trade because they absolutely understand intuitively whether they're filling flash handheld flashes whether they're dealing with remotes whatever it is i look at those pictures and i think that will be an area of photography that i will never do and i could have but i didn't because i was too lazy i couldn't i had other things on my mind but if you want to be a photographer embrace it all and don't forget the videography side of it well we're going to Wrap up, but there is one final question that I ask everybody and Chris hates. If you could both, and again, it's a question for both of you, go back to your younger selves and ignoring photography per se, because you've done a photography tip. If you could give yourselves each, the younger versions of you, a tip for life or a Mm -hmm. tip for your careers, what would it be? the first time I've ever known Johnny and Angie to simultaneously be speechless. Well, no, I don't want to jump in there and, 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 and say, well, what about yours, man? Well, no, my, mine would, I think my tip for life would be for a woman not to be, you know, I had a, a very, a, a very sort of army major father and everything he told me to do, I would do. And everything he said not to do, I would not do when I was little and it did hold me back a lot as a child you know I wanted to be a of all things I wanted to be a ballerina Mm. so I studied dance and when I was um, you know 11 or 12 I actually got a scholarship and he he went back home very pleased and he said you're not going to be a dancer you're going to go to university and you're going to get a profession and you know so I gave up dance well I didn't actually give up dance but I gave it up in my heart and I I hold regrets because I never followed my heart I followed what I was told to do until I met John Mm. (laughs) and then was able to feel that I had a voice and was able to do what I wanted to do for me for my my soul's journey Mm. whereas before I think I I held myself back a lot. And I would say to a lot of young women out there, don't ever listen to others to tell you that you can't do something Mm. until you've explored yourself, whether you can or you can't. Don't let others lead you, Mm. lead yourself. I think 
mine's sort of a combination of two things, one of which is a lot of what you might fear is, as one person said to me, it's lies. We, we allow ourselves to be caught up with fear about things which aren't real. So looking to see and identify what makes us fearful and therefore what limits what we might try and do in life is hugely important. And within that, I think, is the same idea, which is don't ever underestimate your abilities. I was somebody who, for instance, who said, oh, I could never fly. Um, you know, I'm no good at instruments and I wouldn't pass the exam anyway. And I'd get lost because my sense of direction, as Angie would say, you know, I'll go to the toilet in, in a new building and I will automatically go in the wrong direction having come out. But I have managed to convince myself of things. And fortunately, it hasn't made too much difference because I really have had a sort of, you know, an amazing life following my dream. But definitely, I shortchanged myself on allowing myself to believe that there were certain things I couldn't do. And that is an absolute no-no. The opposite is the truth. There is very little you couldn't do if you have the perseverance to make it happen. Well, that was a fascinating answer. Um, I think we might have to keep that question in in the future if we get answers like that. I think like we that, will, right? <laughs> Damn. Talk okay. Good <laughs> That's been really intriguing. It's probably been the easiest podcast we've had to do because you guys just chat away. Um, mm. And it's been fascinating. So thank you both very much for your time. Yes, thank you. It's, um, I've, learned, I've known you for 18 years? At mm. least. 20 years? At possibly. least. A tenth of my life. <laughs> possibly, <laughs> possibly about that. Um, and yeah, I've learned things about you that I didn't know before. So um, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, it's been a well, pleasure. I think, we, yeah, I, I think we salute you because I've actually been quite interested uh, in listening to, <laughs> I won't say in listening to myself. But <laughs> listening. It's okay, Johnny, you can say that. Don't, don't limit yourself. You can say no, that. The great thing is, is when people, and, and I'm going to bear this in mind, and I have been, because some of the people we'll interview, you know, photographers will not take lightly to, to just the obvious questions. But I think that you've explored and, and got a lot more out of us than the average person who's going to ask us stuff that, you know, is just, is a little bit like with photography. If you settle for just what you see as opposed to what you could create in your mind for that photograph. So I think you created a great interview. Thank you very much indeed. Well, we're far Thank from average, you. aren't we? Far from average. <laughs> <laughs> Thank Robert. you both very much.